This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. It's October, spooky month. As we count down the days until Halloween every year, I dedicate my October episodes to creepy, chilling, and or downright scary true crime cases. In this series, Ghosts in the Attic, I'll ask you to consider the question, is it possible that someone could be hiding in your house without your knowledge? In each of these episodes, I'll dial up the creep factor, but this first one, while not as creepy, is downright chilling. You will learn about one of the most violent, brutal, and cruel serial killers I've ever researched. Leonard Fraser would be charged with many rapes, abductions, and murders, and be suspected of many more. One young girl who went missing in mid-1998 in the Rockhampton area of Queensland, Australia, would be counted among his victims. But this case would take a surprising turn that would shock the country. This is Chapter 1 of Ghosts in the Attic. The Case of Natasha Ryan. It was April 22, 1999, when nine-year-old Kira Steinhardt made her way to North Rockhampton Primary School. It was the second week her parents had allowed Kira to walk alone. Several neighbors and students who attended the nearby high school noted the little blonde girl as she cut through a field that served as a shortcut to the schoolyard. A couple whose house was situated just on the edge of the empty field were taking their tea on the porch that day. They saw Kira walking through the field headed in the direction of the school, just yards away from where they sat. It was the second day they had seen the little girl taking this particular route. Also for the second day, they noted a man following along behind her. He was of average height, thin, and also blonde. He wasn't directly behind the girl, but followed a short distance away. The woman assumed that the man must be the little girl's father, perhaps keeping a watchful eye to make sure she made it to school safely. The day before, she'd witnessed the same scene, and minutes after the pair had passed through the field, saw the blonde man walking back alone. But on the second day, just as Kira had reached the midway point through the field, the man caught up to her. The woman watched as the man lifted his arm above his head and seemed to strike the girl from above with his fist or an object. She saw the little girl fall, but couldn't see her afterward as the tall grasses in the field obscured her. The woman's husband had stepped inside for a moment, and now she called to him. She continued to watch the man who seemed to be standing or kneeling over the prone child whom she still couldn't see. She told her husband that she thought the man had struck the girl. He thought she must be mistaken. They both stood on their porch, looking out into the field, but didn't call out or move toward the man. They continued to watch as the man left the field, walking back towards the way he'd come. The woman was concerned for the little girl and told her husband to go and see if she was okay, but he merely walked to the edge of the field and told her he didn't see anyone. A short while later, the couple witnessed a maroon-colored vehicle drive into the field. This in of itself was odd, they thought. 
Then they saw the blonde man exit the vehicle. He took off his shirt and walked through the tall grass and bent over. When he stood up, they saw that he'd wrapped the little girl in his shirt. He then placed the child into the trunk or boot of the car. The man then drove off. Whether in disbelief, frozen in shock, or merely unsure they wanted to get involved, the couple did not call the police for more than 30 minutes. But as much as people were outraged by their inaction, the description they gave the man and his vehicle would be of great help in quickly apprehending 47-year-old Leonard John Fraser. Fraser had a long rap sheet of increasingly violent attacks on women. He was arrested and charged with child abduction while police and the community searched for the little girl. Fraser was interrogated about this crime and several others that had occurred in the Rockhampton area in the past two years. Rockhampton, a city of less than 60,000, had been a peaceful community for much of its history. Then, beginning in 1998, a series of women started to go missing from the area. As investigators looked into Fraser's background, he appeared to be a good suspect, and investigators in these cold cases began to interrogate him. One missing person case that was still open was that of a 14-year-old girl. The similarities between her case and Kira's were striking enough to question Fraser about that missing girl as well. Both girls were from Rockhampton, both attended schools located on Berserker Street, and both were on their way to or from school, wearing their school uniforms when they disappeared. Now, investigators began to believe that Natasha Ryan, who'd gone missing a year earlier, may have been another victim of Leonard Fraser. On August 31, 1998, Natasha Ryan was driven to North Rockhampton State High School by her mother, Jennifer. Natasha said goodbye to her mother and said, I love you, before entering the school. It was the last time she was seen by her family. Natasha's parents reported her missing, but as the teen had a history of running away, the report was not taken very seriously at first. Natasha's parents, Robert and Jennifer Ryan, were divorced. Robert Ryan had remarried, and moved to Bundaberg, about three hours south of Rockhampton, with his new wife, Debbie. Natasha remained living with her mother, Jenny, her older sister, Donna, and her six-year-old brother, Chris. Natasha was a troubled, and according to her parents, difficult teen. She refused to adhere to her mother's rules, and fought with her frequently. She was doing poorly in school, and began using drugs. She'd once tried cutting her wrists. Natasha also ran away briefly several times before, but each time was found within hours or a day, hiding out with friends or in town and brought home. Just six weeks before Natasha disappeared, she tried running away once more. She told her mother she was going to walk the dog and didn't return. Later that week, she was found staying in a motel room registered in the name of her boyfriend, Scott Black. Natasha had met Scott a few months earlier, and they became inseparable. Her parents did not approve of the relationship, as their daughter was only 14, and Black was a 21-year-old milk delivery driver. Jenny, Natasha's mother, reported that after this last attempt to run away with her boyfriend, she had seen a change in her daughter. Black had been arrested and charged with abduction for harboring his underage girlfriend and lying to authorities. Although out on bond, he faced jail time. Jenny took this as an opportunity to try and talk sense into Natasha, and it seemed to work. 
the teen appeared genuinely contrite. She'd returned to school and stopped insisting she be allowed to see Black. Jenny said that her daughter was in a much better place than she'd been in a long time at the time of her disappearance. So Jenny Ryan was instantly alarmed when her daughter didn't return home that evening. When she hadn't returned by the next day, Jenny reported Natasha missing. Jenny told the police that Natasha hadn't taken any extra clothes and had been wearing her school uniform and only carrying her backpack. But a real search for Natasha wouldn't begin for a month. By then, there had been only one sighting of the teen. Two days after she was last dropped off at school, someone reported seeing Natasha playing video games at a local movie theater before leaving with an unidentified man in a car. Her former boyfriend, Scott Black, was questioned and his apartment searched, but he swore he had not heard or seen from Natasha. No trace of her was found, and neighbors were also questioned who said that they'd only seen Scott coming and going from the residence. Information about the missing girl was made public. Police now reported a grave concern for Natasha Ryan's safety, and a widespread search was conducted. Police Constable Robert Newton made a public plea to Natasha, asking her to please let them know, even through a third party, that she was safe if she was able to do so. The public was asked to report the license numbers of any cars they might see her riding in. But there would be no more sightings of Natasha Ryan. Weeks passed, and then months. Natasha had never run away for more than a week before, and her parents didn't believe she could have gotten far without any money or assistance. They also didn't believe that she would stay away so long without contacting them. They might have had their problems in the past, but Natasha knew they loved her, and, quote, there was nothing that couldn't be sorted out between us, said her mother. Then, nine months later, little Kira Steinhardt was assaulted and abducted by a known violent predator from the same area where Natasha Ryan had gone missing. The more Natasha's family and friends learned about Leonard Fraser's crimes, the more terrified they became that she may have become a victim of the Rockhampton Rapist. Leonard John Fraser's life of crime began when he was still a boy. The fourth of five children born to a middle-class family in Ingham, Queensland, Fraser showed a propensity for violent rages early on. He was classified as having low intelligence and suffered from a speech impediment. Fraser would fly into rages when he didn't get his way or was told no. By the age of 14, he dropped out of school and spent his time stealing and getting into fights. At the age of 15, he was sent to the state school for boys on a charge of theft. While there, it was later reported that Fraser was raped by older boys and in turn raped younger boys himself. After his release from the boys' school, Fraser was in and out of jail and prison 20 out of the next 22 years for car theft, armed robbery, assault, and sexual offenses including rape. In 1972, Fraser moved to King's Cross, where he began committing a series of attacks on women. He was incarcerated once more for sex offenses and assault, and then released in 1974. Not long after his release, Fraser committed multiple sexual attacks on women in just a few weeks' time. In the last of these attacks, Fraser dropped his wallet at the scene, identifying him as the perpetrator. Upon his arrest, he admitted to the attack. He would also confess to a particularly brutal rape he had committed in 1972. Fraser had severely beaten the woman and the attack was so vicious that his victim was left unable to conceive children. 
he was given 21 years in prison. After being assessed by a prison psychologist, Fraser was classified as a classic psychopath with little chance for rehabilitation. Even so, Fraser only served seven of his 21 years, the minimum required for his crime, before being released in 1981. Once again, upon his release, Fraser attacked a woman, this time in her own home. He was quickly identified and convicted, but even with his long record of ever more violent assaults on women, he was only given a two-month jail sentence for aggravated assault. After his release for this offense, Fraser met a woman named Pearl and began a relationship with her. It was the first and only stable period in his life. Pearl was unaware of his past criminal history, and perhaps because of this, he attempted a fresh start in life. He began a full-time job working for the railway, and he and Pearl had a daughter together. He also became a father figure to Pearl's young son. It appeared that Fraser had settled into a life of domesticity, but the demon inside him soon reared its ugly head. He began stalking a woman who took morning walks on a beach near his home. One day, he attacked and raped her. He was quickly identified, arrested, and sentenced to 12 years in prison. Pearl now learned of Fraser's terrible past and wanted no more to do with him. Housed in Etna Creek Prison in Rockhampton, Fraser's violent rages were again on display. The other inmates gave him the moniker, Lenny the Loon. This time, prison administrators also took Fraser's violent behavior seriously. He was deemed to be an ongoing threat to society and made ineligible for early release and was ordered to serve his full sentence. In fact, given no options to keep Fraser any longer than 12 years, the warden held him behind prison walls up until the very last second possible before releasing him in 1997. While incarcerated, Fraser had become pen pals with an older woman, and she offered him a place to stay upon his release. The woman was suffering from terminal cancer. When her condition progressed to the point where she needed to be hospitalized, Fraser went with her. But this was no act of mercy. Instead, he preyed upon the dying woman, luring her to the empty hospital chapel where he viciously raped her. She died soon afterward. Then in 1998, when women began going missing from the Rockhampton area, it wasn't long before Len Fraser became a person of interest. Five months after Natasha Ryan went missing, other women began to disappear from the Rockhampton area. In late December 1998, Julie Don Turner, age 39, spent the night out with friends before walking home alone. She was never seen again. The following March, 36-year-old Beverly Lego was last seen leaving a bank in Rockhampton before she, too, disappeared. The following month, four days before Kira Steinhardt was abducted, 19-year-old Sylvia Benedetti was last seen in the company of a man outside of a Rockhampton mall and was not seen again. That nine-year-old Kira was attacked in view of witnesses finally led investigators to one man who would later be connected to all the previous missing women's cases, Leonard John Fraser. Fraser was now also suspected of involvement in the disappearance of 14-year-old Natasha Ryan, who had been missing for nine months. Fraser was arrested for child abduction, and his car was impounded and searched. 
In it, blood was found in the trunk, as well as on the bumper, rear door, and steering wheel. A knife belonging to Fraser was found to contain Kira Steinhardt's blood. Hair was also found in his car that was a match to Kira's. The forensic evidence, combined with eyewitness testimony given by the couple who'd seen him follow and then strike Kira in the field, was enough to charge Len Fraser with Kira's murder. Fraser waited weeks before finally revealing where he'd taken Kira's remains, hoping that any forensic evidence on the body would be degraded enough that he couldn't be charged with her rape. Her body was found in a dry gully off a dirt road outside of town. Her throat had been cut, and she was unclothed except for her school jumper. Now that Fraser was in custody facing a murder charge, investigators began questioning him about the disappearance of four other women, Beverly Lego, Julie Turner, Sylvia Benedetti, and Natasha Ryan. He would eventually confess to the murders of three of the women and lead investigators to their remains. He'd confess to these crimes in exchange for being housed in protective custody instead of placed among the prison's general population. He was well aware that those convicted of sexual assault or murders of children were targeted by other inmates, and he wanted to avoid this danger at all costs. Investigators continued to question him about Natasha Ryan's disappearance, but Fraser still denied he'd had any involvement. He said that Natasha was, quote, still alive in hiding in Rockhampton, unquote. A prison informant was enlisted to befriend Fraser and then press him for details about Natasha Ryan. The informant, Ellen Quinn, played to Fraser's ego, praising him for getting away with Natasha's murder. Fraser took the bait and soon revealed details to Quinn. Fraser said he'd met Natasha at the cinema in Rockhampton. She told him she was heading to Yapoon and he'd offered her a ride. Once they were outside of town, he'd pulled the car over and attacked the girl, Fraser told Quinn. He'd then killed her at the showgrounds and had taken her body to a lily pond near the airport, where he'd buried her under a mango tree. Armed with this information, investigators searched the area as described, but didn't find Natasha's body. However, they believe Fraser's story as it closely coincided with his other murders. Natasha Ryan's family was given the awful news that serial killer Leonard Fraser had admitted to abducting and killing Natasha. Searches were conducted for Natasha's body for several weeks, but no remains were found, and Fraser had stopped talking, now insisting he was innocent of her murder. He now sat in prison awaiting trial for the murders of four women, including Natasha Ryan. In 2001, Robert and Jennifer Ryan held a memorial service on what would have been Natasha's 17th birthday. She had now been missing for over three years. In 2003, Leonard Fraser's trial finally began. He was charged with the abductions and murders of Beverly Lego, Julie Turner, Sylvia Benedetti, and Natasha Ryan. Almost five years had passed since Natasha Ryan was last seen. Strangely, three weeks before the trial began, an anonymous call was made to a service called the Kids Helpline. On April 2, 2003, a girl identifying herself as Sally told the helpline counselor that she was a runaway who had left home to live with her boyfriend. She said that a man was about to go on trial for her murder, and she wanted to report that she was alive and well. The counselor contacted the police and reported the call, 
but the officer who received the report was unable to trace the call and took no further action. About a week later, an anonymous note was received by the Rockhampton Police Department. The note claimed that Natasha Ryan was alive. The anonymous tipster had provided a phone number where they claimed Ryan could be reached. Police officers traced the phone number back to a house on Mills Avenue in Rockhampton, only two kilometers away from Natasha's mother's home. It was discovered that the house was being rented by none other than Scott Black, Natasha's old boyfriend. On April 10, 2003, police conducted a raid on the residence. Scott Black was removed from the home and placed in custody while a search of the house was conducted. In the back of the house, in a bedroom, officers opened up a large cupboard closet, and inside they found Natasha Ryan. She at first denied she was Ryan and refused to leave the home with officers. They gave her the option to come with them willingly to be checked out at a hospital or taken to the police department in handcuffs. She chose the former. Natasha, now 18 years old, was found to be very thin and pale, but healthy and in good condition. The following day, investigators approached Robert Ryan as he entered the courthouse to attend Leonard Fraser's trial for the murder of his daughter. They told him that someone claiming to be Natasha was on the phone and asked him to speak with her to confirm or deny her identity. Ryan at first couldn't believe what he was hearing. It had been over four years since he'd heard his daughter's voice. He thought the girl sounded like Natasha, but he couldn't be sure. He asked her to tell him what his private pet name for Natasha was. The girl answered, I love you, Daddy, and it's Grasshopper. Ryan, shocked, felt his knees buckle, and he almost dropped the phone. His daughter had been found alive. When Jennifer Ryan learned that her daughter was alive, she was shocked and elated. Then when she discovered Natasha had been hiding and living with Scott Black for all the years she'd been missing, she was furious. She couldn't believe her daughter had put her through 57 months of hell, not knowing what had happened to her, and then for more than two years, allowing her to believe that she had been the victim of a sadistic serial killer. I hated her, Jenny Ryan told 60 Minutes Australia, and I didn't want to see her. But once Jenny Ryan did see her daughter, all she could do was hug her and cry. She said it would take a lot to forgive her daughter for the torture she went through, but she was willing to try. But first she wanted, no, she needed to know exactly where Natasha had been for all that time. Natasha told her mother that in the weeks leading up to her disappearance, she had planned her getaway. She had been angry and depressed for some time, Natasha said. She hated being at home and she hated school, and she just wanted to be somewhere else. She denied that Scott Black talked her into running away, insisting it was all her idea. Scott helped her, Natasha said, because she was desperate, and he loved her. After her mother dropped her off that morning, Natasha left the school and spent the next few hours at the cinema, waiting for Scott to pick her up. He had taken a job transfer to Yapoon, a coastal town located about three hours northeast of Rockhampton. They'd lived in a house there for the first four years she was gone. Then Scott's job took him back to Rockhampton. They moved into a house on Mill Street, just blocks away from her mother's home. Oddly, 
When Leonard Fraser was secretly being recorded in prison and bragged about kidnapping and killing Natasha, he said that he had been approached by the girl who said she needed a ride to Yapoon. He later changed his story, telling police that Natasha was alive and, quote, hiding in Rockhampton. How did he know this? Was it just a coincidence? It's just one of the creepy details that stuck with me while researching this case. And how had Natasha not been discovered in the almost five years she was gone? She explained that she and Black took careful precautions to make sure that she was never seen. Because of the publicity surrounding her disappearance, she was afraid if she even showed her face briefly in public, she'd be recognized. For five years, Natasha almost never left the house. She spent her days behind thick curtains, watching movies on DVD, sewing, and surfing the internet. Natasha learned to sew since it was too risky for Scott to purchase women's clothing for her. She also improvised on other necessities that would look suspicious for Scott to purchase, like women's hygiene products. Black's neighbors were questioned, and all of them said they believed Scott Black lived alone. They never saw Natasha come or go from his house, and even when he hung his wash on the line in his yard, it was only men's clothes pinned up to dry. His co-workers at the Demidel Dairy Factory, where he worked for six years, never had a clue that he lived with anyone or had a girlfriend. In total, Natasha believes she ventured outside the walls of Black's home only six times in the nearly five years she was in hiding. Once or twice, she and Black snuck out after midnight so Natasha could sit in the dark on the beach located nearby. But what about Black's friends and family? He had not made many friends in Yapoon since he'd only moved there shortly before Natasha came to live with him. And as for family, yes, that was a problem at times, Natasha reported. The few times Black's family members visited, Natasha would hide herself away in the large cupboard closet in the back bedroom. The media picked up the story about the missing teen who disappeared in 1998 and was feared murdered by a serial killer only to be found hiding in her boyfriend's cupboard. Stories about Natasha Ryan called her the girl in the cupboard, although Natasha clarifies that she was never in the cupboard for very long. Even so, media outlets clamored for details of how Ryan stayed hidden for years. The day after she was discovered, celebrity agent Max Markson contacted Ryan. She signed a deal with him to sell the exclusive rights to her story. Markson secured contracts with both 60 Minutes Australia for an on-camera interview and Women's Day for an exclusive article and photos. Queenslanders, already unhappy that they had spent years searching for Natasha Ryan, holding candlelight vigils and then mourning her presumed death, became outraged when they learned Ryan was being rewarded financially for her ruse. Approximately $400,000 had been spent on the investigation into her disappearance, and thousands of volunteer hours had been spent on the search as well. Lyle Dobbs, the person in charge of leading the state emergency service volunteer effort, said, The investigation was a massive waste of community resources. The public called for both Natasha and Scott Black to be charged criminally and demanded that they reimburse the state for the cost of the investigation. Reportedly, Natasha Ryan was paid about $200,000 for the exclusive rights to her story. Her interview with 60 Minutes was scheduled for release by the network to coincide with the season three premiere of Big Brother Australia. The network believed that they could bring in more viewers by running the interview with The Girl in the Cupboard and win in a ratings war. Perhaps the public's distaste for the way Ryan was capitalizing on her notoriety kept some from tuning in. When the interview finally aired, 1.7 million people watched Ryan tell her story, 
while 2.2 million viewers tuned in to watch Big Brother instead. On her 60 Minutes interview, shot just days after she emerged from hiding, Ryan looks thin and very pale, but healthy. She gives Tara Brown a tour of the house she hid in for years and shows her the cupboard. When asked by Brown, how could you do this to your family? Ryan answers, I honestly don't know. She admits she thought of calling home more than once, but couldn't do it. The lie got too big, she said, and characterizes herself as too gutless to come out of hiding. Ryan explains that she was afraid both she and Scott would be sent to jail. Natasha Ryan missed half of her brother's life. Chris, who was just six when his sister disappeared from his life, had to become reacquainted with her as if she were a stranger, but was thrilled to have his big sister back. She'd also missed her sister Donna's wedding. Held 18 months before her sister's return, Donna had hoped that Natasha would be a bridesmaid at her wedding. As it was, her special day was marred by the terrible belief that her sister had been murdered. Natasha says that although it was hard to be isolated and away from her family for so long, she and Scott were happy. She adamantly denies that Scott, although 21 years old to her 14 years at the time she ran away, ever controlled her. Psychologists weighed in on Natasha Ryan's situation after some wondered if the teen could have been suffering from a type of Stockholm Syndrome. Stockholm Syndrome is a phenomenon that was first coined after four people were taken hostage during a bank robbery attempt in Stockholm, Sweden in 1973. It describes a psychological bond that forms between captives for their captors. It's characterized by the captives developing positive feelings for their captors, even resulting in refusing opportunities to break free when a chance is presented. Stockholm Syndrome, however, specifically applies to hostages or captives who have had no previous relationship with their captors, unlike Natasha. One psychologist, though, points out that like a hostage, Natasha Ryan was dependent on Scott Black for all her needs during her time in hiding. Psychologist Bob Montgomery told the New Zealand Herald that Ryan's prior personal and family problems were compounded by her solitude and reliance on Black after she ran away. Quote, He was bringing in the food, providing a house. The longer that went on, the more dependent she was on him not to have to face up to the consequences of running away. End quote. Scott Black, an adult, took a 14-year-old child away from her home and family and hid her for years, and in the eyes of the law, this is child abduction. However, Black was able to plead to a reduced charge. In 2005, he was given a three-year jail sentence for perjury. Two years of the sentence was then suspended after he pled guilty to making false statements during the investigation into Natasha's disappearance. He was also fined $3,000 by the court and ordered to pay back $16,000 towards the investigation costs. In 2006, Natasha Ryan was found guilty of causing a false police investigation and fined $1,000. The state wanted to hold her responsible for all the costs of the investigation, and although it was revealed that she had already been paid over $120,000 for interviews, the judge ruled that Ryan did not have the means to pay the state back and ordered no reimbursement. In 2008, Natasha Ryan and Scott Black were married. Wedding guests were screened upon arrival and strictly forbidden from taking any photos or video during the wedding or reception. It is believed that the couple signed a deal with Women's Day, who later published photos of the wedding. The couple reportedly received $200,000, 
for giving the publication exclusive rights to these images. The day after it was announced that Natasha Ryan had been found alive, the prosecutor dropped one charge of murder against Leonard Fraser. Natasha was called to testify in what would have been her own murder trial. She declared on the stand that she had never met Leonard Fraser. In 2003, Fraser was found guilty of the murders of Sylvia Benedetti and Beverly Lego and the manslaughter of Julie Turner. In June of that year, he was given three indefinite life sentences in addition to the first life sentence he received for the murder of Kira Steinhardt. After serving four years in prison, Fraser died on New Year's Day 2007 of a heart attack at the age of 55. During his time in prison, Fraser had confessed to additional murders. Among his victims, he listed two women hitchhikers in the 1970s and a 17-year-old indigenous woman he said he had dated, whom he had also raped and strangled. Investigators liked him for several more missing and murdered women's cases that were still unsolved, but Fraser would never admit to any more crimes. He was also suspected in the murder of 21-year-old Michelle Coral Lewis, who went missing on January 14, 1989, after leaving a friend's home in Rockhampton. Upon searching Fraser's last known residence, investigators discovered trophies they believed he had collected from more of his victims. These items included ponytails cut off three unidentified women. The hair samples did not match any of Fraser's known victims, and the owners have never been identified. In 2006, a book was published about the life and crimes of Leonard Fraser. Titled, Things a Killer Would Know, The True Story of Leonard Fraser, it was written by Paula Donovan. Fraser was also featured in the series Crime Scene Investigation Australia, The episode is titled Predator, Leonard John Fraser. I've included a link to the episode as well as Natasha Ryan's interview on 60 Minutes in the show notes. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. To ask questions or comment about this episode or any others, you can join our Once Upon a Crime Facebook fan page or send us a voicemail. Just click on the red microphone on our website homepage at truecrimepodcast.com. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia, and original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. I'll be back next week with the next chapter in the series, Ghosts in the Attic, and I'll be dialing up the creep factor to a 10 so you won't want to miss it. Until then, take care to guard yourself against things that go bump in the night. There's nothing in that closet. Sleep well and be good to one another.